If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Afrotech 2017, San Francisco, California. Deshaun Amir is the founder and CEO at Maven, a distribution technology company focused on the hair extension market, partnering with stylists who serve as the sales force. He's on the main stage being interviewed by Jeff Johnson, discussing the wealth opportunity black beauticians were missing out on by not taking advantage of their supply chain. What I saw specifically in the, in the hair extension world and which came to me via a family member who is a hairstylist, asked me if I could get her some hair extensions from China, and I did. Um, and next thing you know, just because I wanted to make some money, I'm selling hair out the trunk of the car to all these hair salons. Um, and what struck me was that we're buying like $9 billion of hair products, um, but we don't sell any of it, right? Literally, uh, the customers that go across the street to the Korean beauty supply store, buy the products, and then come across the street, bring it to the salon. So you have all this throughput of all of this, you know, uh, uh, this commerce going through these salons, but not capturing any of that revenue. Um, and that is fundamentally what I wanted to change. I didn't know anything about hair extensions before I got into this business. To me, it was about the distribution of these products and who is getting what proportion of the margin. And let's talk about that a little bit because because part of your business model wasn't just about you making money. You one, had a value proposition for hairstylists and two, had a model for creating wealth, not just for you, but for a nation of people who were being left out of the equation. Why was that important for you? And then what was the process of ensuring that not only the business model was tight, but you literally were ensuring a shift in wealth creation for people who before had no access? I mean, fundamentally, what I saw and what I see in hairstylists and I see in hair salons um, is power and influence. I see power and influence in hairstylists. They are, um, they're influencing on a daily basis billions of dollars of purchasing decisions for what people are gonna buy. Um, and, and they're entrepreneurial. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I always wanna support that. And so, you know, when I saw that I could both create a business that both empowered other entrepreneurs in my community and be a big ass business, that's what drew me into it. I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. 
I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Sherelle Dorsey is the founder and CEO of The Plug, a subscription-based digital news and insights platform covering the black innovation economy. Prior to launching The Plug, she was a marketing manager for companies like Uber and Google Fiber. I asked Sherelle about how to monetize content and starting your entrepreneurial journey with a bit of tinkering and experimentation. A lot of times we all have this really great idea for what we know is going to be like a million to billion dollar business. And I think as well, culture really pushes you to say, go out in the world and create something significant, raise a ton of money to do it. And like that kind of seems, you know, it's, it's a very romantic ideal. Um, For me, I wanted to be solid in what it was that I was creating first and kind of working through, you kind of mature your idea as well as you as as a leader and as a practitioner, you're maturing as well and kind of responding to the initial hypotheses that you have about is, are, are people interested in this? And so by kind of creating the plug under the guise of, hey, you know, I've already kind of been freelancing and writing and sharing um, about what's taking shape, um, what we call the Black tech ecosystem. Do people even want like a, a daily edition of my findings and learnings and folks that I'm speaking to, as well as um, sort of a, a one-stop shop for their day of figuring out among all the other things that they're reading that are going to center white guys in hoodies, do they actually want to see black and brown faces and voices as part of this entire narrative? And it turned out that, yeah, a lot of people were really interested. And so so that kind of like, as you, we talk a lot about milestones, particularly in tech or particularly in the space of building a company, um, but that kind of initial testing you know, phase is really what you're kind of prototyping. And Eric Reese says this a lot around the kind of lean startup methodology, like you're you're prototyping, you're testing. I think also it's a psychological trick so that if you fail at it, you don't feel so crappy <laughs> right, after, right? right? right. I was just like, trying oh, something. Like, I was just playing anyway, you know? <laughs> and so it kind of it kind of de-escalates some of the stress of feeling like you have to succeed versus this is an experiment. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I'll pivot and try something else. And so there's definitely been several different pivots around the way that we've delivered content, the way in which we've made assumptions about our audiences. And so for the most part, you know, going from the daily newsletter, from for my part, it was just how do we stay consistent? Is there enough news and conversation happening to even do something Monday through Friday? Um, and that was kind of the first question. And the second question was, are people ready for rigorous data-driven sort of journalism and news? Um, and I'll be honest, it, it's it's one of those spaces where you can kind of have kind of more of just a very information purposes sort of environment, which I think is very significant to the ecosystem. I think that um, a lot of folks do that well, Afrotech does that well. Um, and, and then like, how do we differentiate ourselves as a media publication? And so for me, it was really leaning into the analytics of some of the reporting. Um, and then also wanting to tell a story that really responds to a, a question or a series of questions about what folks are building from a context of how does this how does this fit in scope, not just this one entrepreneur or this one opportunity to raise capital, but how does this fit into the larger picture about what's going on in the country, in the world, in this particular frame? Even when we got into the paid membership component, again, another opportunity to test for those who've been rocking with us for two, three years, are they willing now to make an investment in having access to premium content? And, and kind of soliciting those folks early on so that when we were ready to launch, and even when I say ready, ready wasn't complete tied up with the bow. It was like, you know, day one out the gate, people's accounts like weren't registering. <laughs> so, you know, you're kind of just like, yeah. all right, you know, but because they'd been following the work for so long, it was like a quick, nice email. Hey, Sherelle, like something's yeah. going on with my password, you know, like, you know, get to it when you can. They were understanding. There was a ton of grace there. And so I I think through that entire process, Will, I also try to bring people along for the journey and the ride and trying to describe and demonstrate, like, here's what I'm doing. Here's what's working. 
here's what's not really working. Um, and just try to give myself grace in the process because it's just a process at the end of the day. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I've thought about this the whole time. And that does not remove any stress because you still want, have this tendency to want to deliver well and as best as possible. And there are just some things that are going to be out of your control. There's some things you're just not going to know. And when you're first building your business, sometimes it's just you and your Wi-Fi. That's right. And so That's right. you don't have a team to help like create additional checks and balances or that you can lean on to do the work until you start to build up, you know, those particular, um, you know, capacity opportunities. So, you know, it's, it's a journey. It's a journey. Yeah. One of the things we talk about often is, and we I mean black people, it's like we don't pigeon ourselves into like the diversity conversation or the minority types of conversations. And for instance, like at the conference, you won't see like panels on diversity per se, but there is a meaningful activity from black people in business at large and from startup creation to venture funding, innovation and more. So we're out here. Talk to me about your take on the need for a broader narrative other than just, you know, here's the diversity metrics at et cetera. You know, I think it's I think it's great and very commendable that that's not the focus because I think everyone could has to be exhausted with the diversity conversation, and that's not to negate the work and the practitioners that are in the space. It's very much needed, but I think in terms of when we're getting together and we're talking about next generation technology, next generation leadership, when we're talking about the kinds of challenges that we have to solve, particularly for our communities, we can't stay stuck on the trauma because it is traumatic. It's hard to keep telling people I'm human and I exist and I'm yeah. smart and I have I come from a family that that has love in it or I come from, you know, a community that, you know, has invested everything they could in, into to getting me to this point. Like it's 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 frustrating too, right? Like it's really frustrating to continue to have to define your humanity for people who clearly if you don't get it by now in 2020, it's kind of like you're not that interested and yeah. we shouldn't have to continue to do that emotional labor, especially not with each other. Right. I think that there are definitely some critical conversations that we need to have and not just like the value of diversity, but how from a tactical perspective we can do better. Like, Hey, black men, if you see that everyone on this tech panel is just black men and you haven't invited any women or you haven't invited any trans women into the conversation, like that's kind of a check and balance you should probably think about. And I think we don't need to have a whole host of conversations about it. I think we need to be able to say it, iterate and move on. Um, and some people need to process. And I think there are gonna be spaces for that. But anytime that we get together, I feel like we should be thinking progressively. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbroke, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth... Let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale one million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., 
only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. So alongside these personality-driven storytelling thing that obviously has its place. Uh, traditionally people will go to like the census bureau or Nielsen to find data on like black consumer habits or population makeups. What is the unique value that information coming from us, that that information comes from a source that is a member of these communities? That is the deepest question. Will. um, uh, one that, one that I'm sure has just a, t- a, a ton of different kind of responses. I think, Number one, it speaks to the history of funding discrimination, mm-hmm. right? You can't go to any in institution and not find a Black PhD that has not tried to make the research and discovery of what's happening in terms of Black innovation a core part of their research and their work, but they did not get access to the funding that they needed because mm. you have to prove to too many people that it matters. And a lot of wow. folks are like, oh, no, no, you can get it, you know, in the aggregate. You don't need it on a granular level. And so there are so many folks that I've had the privilege of talking to who we're all centered around this idea of better and stronger data collection. And when it does come from your community, it makes a core difference in the way that you look at it because numbers can just look like numbers to anyone, right? We, we quote numbers all the time. We don't really know how the methodology was, was extracted. You know, I think it's, it's the challenge with the PPP program too. I'm sure that on the onset, it looked like, oh, we're going to save small businesses, but we didn't dive into, well, which zip codes are we serving? Right. You know, which particular communities, urban or rural? Who actually lives in those communities? And so then you see that what 94% of most PPP lending went to majority white businesses yeah, yeah. or something like that, right? And a lot of those being affluent businesses that were not small businesses. So when it comes from us, um, ideally, right, for, for folks who, who have some kind of understanding of doing um, sociology rooted work around black communities, when it comes from us, we're leading with that in mind, even in the way in which we interview people, even in the way in which we build relationships with communities. Um, and, and so I I think of course that again, that the response really warrants a look at, we traditionally haven't had the resources to do our own research and we traditionally haven't had the backing of institutions that trust us to do our own research and our own work. So yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. Um, when you are deep into the numbers on a lot of these things, and I remember um, hearing an interview, I don't even remember who gave the interview, but they, they asked a black woman who raised over a million dollars, you know, you're one of the, you know, less than 10 black women who have raised over a million dollars. And she was like, no, there's dozens of black women who have raised over a million dollars. But the, one of the issues with that is we don't always get that kind of data in mainstream news. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about what are like the trends that you see regards to black people and their ability to be successful in technology? Yeah, I think, um, I think at the end of the day, like there's a lot of quiet work and I can understand because to really be great at what you do and to really be invested at in what you do you aren't necessarily, I mean, like all of the incredible technologists that I know that are building really dope shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, they, they don't have social media profiles, you know, like they're not trying to get famous. Mm. 
they're too busy being nerds. You know what I'm saying? Like they're like building 3D models on the weekends and like teaching themselves machine learning and creating deep fakes just for fun. Um, and and you, you'll see that a lot with a lot of computer scientists, like they just don't have those profiles. I mean, they may have what they need for work purposes, but there's not a ton of investment in these things because they're invested in the actual learning of the technology. And even though we see less representation in comparison to white populations, at the end of the day, like there are people there that exist in these spaces that are doing well. Of course, there has to be some infrastructure changes around when do these folks get promoted, right? You have the CEO of, of Zooks who just, you know, was kind of the face of this initiative around Amazon purchasing the company for over $1 billion. And like, my question is like, when's the next black woman of a tech company who is going to be leading a billion dollar sale? Right. I mean, we know Stacey Brown Philpot from TaskRabbit has recently stepped down after selling the company to Ikea. And so, like, are we growing in that pipeline the next whomever? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and so I think I think when it comes to that data conversation, because we traditionally haven't had the funding to do the extraction of that information or we haven't even just in the newsroom have put the resources forward to make that happen we're going to get a lot of like misused dirty data, you know, because if only we know of 27 black women that raise over a million dollars, that's all that we could count. But that doesn't, that doesn't look historically, you know, beyond, you know, beyond even just venture capital. Um, we're going to get these faulty numbers that we quote and then we turn into like policy. Now there's some great things that come out of it, right? Is this rush to urgency of like, oh my gosh, only 10 black women have raised X, Y, Z. Well, let's put some more money so that we can get more. And like, okay, like that's probably one of the positive outcomes. But at the same time, I think the, the greater question is how do we start to document these successes Wildly, widely and frequently, how do we make this a part of the work? And I mean, that's honestly what we do at The Plug is like, I'm trying to make this a part of our practice and our work in a substantive way. And this is also, the, it has to be the work in the, in the, um, the mission as well for all of these think tanks and all of these like institute for black research, what have you, like you have poverty institutes, which is interesting to me, but like, who has like progress? I mean, obviously there's the Institute of Progressive Policy, but like, <laughs> but like when it comes to research on black and brown communities, there aren't as many people represented. Um, I'm not sure if you, you listened to the NPR episode with economist Lisa D. Cook, like she's one of like, I think less than 10 black economists, PhDs that are at an institution. Oh, this has come out a couple of days ago about the- um... On patents. Yes, I did see yeah. that. I did see that. Yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago. And it's just like, you know, I follow a lot of Lisa's work. And it's like, even before she could even complete what she was trying to accomplish, she had to kind of go back and redocument and understand in terms of history why patents fell off. That's right. And sort of that kind of Jim Crow, read all of these kind of narratives yeah. and historical domestic Black violence. Black people didn't trust the theaters. government to protect them regardless so why absolutely yeah. And, yeah and so i think that like imagine imagine if there are 50 times more you know lisa d cooks working in institutions and bringing this research forward and one of the most distinctive parts of that particular episode was lisa's publishing of this particular research should have been completed within about a year or two and because of how systemic racism works, literally it took her, I think it said like five, six or seven years. Cause she was dealing with all the BS around like folks didn't want to see this stuff come to light. Wow. So even just getting basic research with the data, like sometimes the yeah. data, it doesn't even matter if you've collected it well or not. The reality is like, there still are kind of these roadblocks, especially because, and, and why it's so significant is because you know, once this stuff is published, it's transformative. That's right. Right? And like, then people have to really like pay attention. How, how did we get almost anything done in the last five years, particularly as it pertains to Black tech ecosystem, is because of having to publish research to prove to the powers that be that we have been disenfranchised, 
we have been underfunded, we've been discriminated against, we constantly have to prove our our humanity. Yeah, Sorry, I'm yeah. trying not to curse as much. <laughs> but, like, but you know, but like, but like that's the name of the game. And it goes back to, to Toni Morrison's whole thing on like the very nature of racism is distraction. Like it's it, if it takes you seven years to get this work done to start changing patent policies for the US um, House of Business uh, business in their last um their last uh, hearing on why we need to collect data and provide more resources to black owned businesses, seven years. Imagine if two, if, if five years ago that was done, we could have been had this conversation. You know what I'm saying? Facts, so, anyway. facts. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think about um, last year at the conference, I talked to Charles Hudson, uh, who's a venture capitalist. I think he said a precursor. precursor yeah. And I asked Morgan the same question, you know, about it was about when you're the only one in the room. So when you go to a conference that's not like Afrotech, but when you are a VC, like in Charles's position and you go to any other conference and you're like the only black VC in the room. Anybody who's black that's there wants to come see you because you're the only one and they feel like yeah. you're going to get their plight. Right. And so I wonder what do you see that's encouraging about the numbers of black venture capitalists who have more ability, um, who are number one, getting the jobs, but number two, have more ability to fund companies from communities that look like ours. So what's encouraging about our trajectory? If there's anything encouraging about it to you? Honestly, that's what attracts me to this space because it gives me hope. You know, it's like an, amid all the tragedy and you alluded to this earlier too, Will, just like there's so much happening. There's so much friction and tension. There's so much tragedy and death. And, you know, it's like you grow up with the stories of my grandfather's from Birmingham, Alabama. He left when he was 13. He didn't go back to visit until maybe his eighties. And that was at the behest of like my dying um, great aunt. And he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't talk about what it was like to grow up in an environment that was violent and that, you know, bombed a church with four little black girls. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when you grow up with that kind of tragedy and those kind of stories and, and the struggle and the books and the Baldwins and the Angelous, you know, on your bookshelf, you, you know what kind of a resilient space and, and um, foundation you have, but you're always hyper aware that struggle is imminent, right? Especially in this country. And so for me, I mean, like I learned coding and things like that in high school in Seattle from black women engineers and my cousins who went to Morehouse and, and Clark and Spelman and, you know, will come home and, you know, they bought their first properties at 19 and we're talking about wealth building and, and they were black as hell, you know, <laughs> and they were fly. <laughs> And, you know, and I'd go to Microsoft during the summers and work in high school as an intern. And it was just like, I wanted to be in those environments, but I also wanted to fully be myself. Like I saw my cousins being. And so when I, when I see the progression of, even if you're the only person in the room, like that visibility matters and you still have to keep opening more doors and training up folks as well to exist in those rooms. So it gives me a sense of hope, honestly, um, every little inch that we move forward, it gives me a greater sense of hope. And, I, and I'll tell you what matters more to me, Will, is that we are starting our own things and that we are not necessarily asking for permission in the ways that we used to. Um, I know there's a lot of fodder around Black Wall Street and all these kinds of things, and I think it's great. Yeah. I think that the vast majority of us will have to work for some of these companies that traditionally have not been kind to, to group underrepresented groups. That's just the reality. Not everyone's going to be a full-time entrepreneur building a multi-million dollar company. But if we can also build strong CEOs and practitioners that can build multi-million dollar companies, then I don't have to tell my little cousin to go once he finishes his education that you have to go to one of these tech companies and here's all the ways you can finesse getting a job there. I can say, you know what, there's this venture firm that was started by a black or brown person, you know, or here was this company that was started by a black or brown person and you can go work for them and you don't have to go through all the hoops in order to get that dollar, right? Like at the end of the day, I'm not asking for y'all to save me. 
right? Like I'm gonna save myself. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Shirell is proof you don't have to wait till you get a million daily page views, have 100,000 IG followers, or celebrity endorsement before you can start charging for the value you provide. The plug has premium content behind a paywall, data, insights, and studies on the black innovation economy that you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere else. A lot of companies you might admire make no real money. It doesn't have to be this way. Sherelle Dorsey speaks on it. Number one, I think folks are on information overload. Um, I felt like we even went from daily to weekly, you know, and just doing a deeper dive on a Monday, like here's how you can be smart for the week about what's going on. But I don't want to keep flooding your inbox and you're paying attention to the metrics too. You're looking at your open, open rates decline. You're looking at like, okay, every single day, do I want to read this? Like, Maybe I have access, I can have access maybe through social media to see what's taking place. But, you know, going deeper and less frequent allows you to build somewhat of an intimate relationship with your audience. At least that's the way that I, I, I kind of think about that. I think about what slow journalism looks like. I look about, I look at what does long form journalism, you know, and sort of what I subscribe to. I definitely have my dailies and just my quick rundown. Cause you know, when you're, when you're looking at it, you're just looking at the headlines, right? But if you're trying to have an intimate relationship and why these newsletters are kicking off on things like Substack, you're getting to know the person behind it. You're getting to know the work you get to be deeply invested in a topic. You get to slow your brain down a bit and contemplate. You see these folks who are building communities off of like big ideas and tactical advice around like, how do you essentially develop yourself better? Be it like better productivity tools to how to run a team to, you know, how to manage your money better amid a pandemic. Um, and so when I kind of, I started to see that and then secondarily, I wanted to put the value add back into what it means to be a journalist, particularly a Black journalist trying to cover Black community. And for me, while I believe that journalism in and of itself is a public service, I'm not here to entertain people. Hmm. 
I'm here to educate. I'm here to inform. I'm also here to uplift. I'm also here to be critical of some of the work because just because it's black and it happened, it doesn't mean that it's great. And we have to have these nuanced conversations. And so, you know, being part of that philosophy also of, of watching the venture capital industry, not necessarily fund media companies, watching a lot of the way traditional uh, business model for journalism has taken place. It also seems like, Hey, like there, there has to be a new method because advertising is all being eaten up by Facebook and Google and, you know, all of, all of, all of the folks who are getting all the ad dollars. So I, I can't come out of the gate trying to compete with those mofos with just little old me, right? <laughs> so, so I'm going to have to figure out a way to immediately ask people to make the investment. You know, and it's like the plug is $100 a year or, you know, $30 a quarter. Of course, I still have advertising and sponsorships. You know, of course, like we leverage grants where it makes most sense. Um, but it, it really is about playing a different kind of game because obviously the nature of the business has changed drastically. And, you know, uh, of course, not everybody is going to say like, I can either afford it or I actually want it. But you quickly start to find your tribe and you quickly start to find what people value. Um, and at the end of the day, if you're producing a great and a formidable product, people want to be a part of that. Yeah, let's talk about that because what is sales like in this sense? Because it's one thing to have a product and it's another to communicate the value of that product to a potential customer. Mm-hmm. Right. And, or, or do you think of it more as you're not trying to convince a new subscriber, but perhaps you're looking for the people who are already convinced, but may not know that they may not be aware of your offering. So what does sales look like in the respect of what you're doing? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, in the beginning and going back to that kind of experimental phase, of course, you think everyone on your subscriber list is like, yeah, of course, they read my stuff already. Again, you know, you start to segment out, you know, who's who finds the information, you know, valuable to their work. Um, And so you start to kind of see, okay, well, these are the kind of folks who are starting to subscribe. Um, These are the kind of folks who are using and leveraging these tools within their their company or within their business. And so I find that just more business people that are making investment decisions, that are making policy decisions, that are even making reporting decisions, they're the ones who are like, I don't have to convince them to subscribe. As soon as they learn about us, especially over the last couple of weeks where I'm sure like we've all seen an uptick in traffic, as soon as they learn about us, like they're clicking that button, they're putting their credit card in and they're like, yep, you know, and I, I think too, you know, in terms of um, in terms of that sales process, I think I've had to get as clear as possible on the value, right? I've I've had to again. That's also talking about the work. It's demonstrating the work. It's this kind of idea or philosophy around doing your work in public, mm-hmm. and so you know, demonstrating like, hey, like my team and I are researching X, Y, and Z, or hey, like we're you know we're looking to do an interview series on X, Y, and Z, you know, and and not being afraid of like, look. If there are folks that want to try to replicate what we've done, like by all means, go with God. Like I know who I am. I know what my background is. I know, I know how I've built this. And like the folks that like, like, like you can't, you can't do a story like me. You're just not going to, because I'm too good at at this. And I'm, I have, (laughs) I have a clear angle and editorial judgment on how, on how I do the work. Not everything's going to hit with everyone, but you're going to walk away with, the story under the story, right? Like you're gonna, I'm, we're gonna ask the questions that no one else has asked. We're gonna do the extra layer because we don't necessarily have to compete for just driving page views and mm-hmm. things like that. Like mm-hmm. that's not our metric. And so once you get, kind of get clear on that, your sales process looks vastly different, right? You have universities that want students to get access. So, you know, again, like I'm not for everybody, and that's okay. And I think niche is so significant. And I'm sure, you know, these are the kind of the conversations that you may be having too, Will, around, um, you know, having these discussions with folks who felt like initially, like is black news, black tech news, is black business, is that actually a business? Right, yes. You yeah. know, yeah. like how many times have I, you know, been in environments or spaces where folks have been like, that's great, but like, oh, you know, that's like not a big thing. And, but they said that to us about our hair care, you know, they said that to us about 
our sunscreen. Now you got black girl sunscreen, like killing it right now. Um, so again, like being underestimated, you know, as Arlen Hamilton says, like is such a great opportunity to be like, all right, I know my audience. And I know that for every person that's like me that has a very similar life experience or comes from a very similar experience, like I know that they're out there. Right. But I also know too, that there are crops of individuals who are trying to get it. And the way that they speak, the way that they talk, the kind of schools they come from, the kind of communities they come from, there's a certain language in which they identify with um, as they read and digest information. And like, if you can develop your content in a way that is that has journalistic integrity, but also meets the needs of today's business mind, you're like, you can't, you can't really lose. Um, so, you know, again, I, I think at the end of the day, like all of that said and all the great words said, it's all an experiment. I mean, you know, we're either between being wildly successful or yeah. completely failing. Like, I don't know. <laughs> we just oh, want to keep going. <laughs> but talk to me about that early on, you know, how you build that credibility to monetize early or where people don't question or at least are more receptive to paying for your work. Like, how do you build that credibility? You know, I think there's a variety of ways. Um, I think number one, um, and, and I'll, and I don't know if if uh, if these are conversations you've had yet with other folks on this podcast, but you know, as, as a black woman, my credibility has been doubted in every room that I've been in. Oh yeah, until, we talk about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, until it's not right. Yeah, like yeah. I've been talked over. I've had you know my campaigns where I have completely won, and um, still my male counterparts, you know, are either a trying to take credit or they did something mildly okay and they were praised and so for me I didn't go into building this out um with without knowing that it's going to take me a little while to be recognized because we don't call black women geniuses not outside of our own communities we don't we don't when we talk about being the next whatever we talk about mark zuckerberg and we talk about elon musk and we talk about bill gates right we don't talk about the next jewel burks we don't talk That's about right. the next Demetra wilson like don't tell me you know you want to be the next zuckerberg like why like there's so many other individuals that like i i want my nieces to look up to right and so for me, knowing that and being hyper aware and hyper clear, um, for me, it was like, I like you're not going to outwork my work and the quality of my work because it's always going to get better. And so for me, it was as long as I put the work in, it's going to come together, right? For me, it wasn't about the hyper visibility or the accolades or the attention even on social media but it was leveraging the tools and resources that I had access to because I didn't have the dollars, right? So I couldn't invest in a PR person. I couldn't invest in like crazy ads or yep. what have you. My work in and of itself had to stand on its own. And then being strategic about my network and sharing and constantly talking about my work and saying like, hey, you know, actually, you know, I run X, Y, and Z. This is the work that we're doing, making it useful for people. Um, and as it kind of crept along, you know, it it was helpful. I mean, obviously the, the biggest boon for us was, you know, our tech statements database that we put together um, a few days after George Floyd was killed. And we started to see all these tech CEOs start to speak out about, um, racism and police brutality and and as I started to track and again like I started this project with with the idea of I want to create a story and craft a story of, of of you know who these companies are who these leaders are and what their actual like racial representation looks like at their companies because yep. they're talking a good game but does that <laughs> actually mean that they're practicing what they preach and again that whole philosophy on doing your work in public once I got to like 20, 25 companies and I started working with one of our data fellows to like complete some of the, the, um, the different attributes and tables and columns, it was like, okay, like let's kind of push this out and kind of see if other people have things to add to it. Mm -hmm. And it went viral, you know? And it's like, this is not the first, you know, sheet or database that like we've, we've allowed to kind of go into the wild. It's not the first time we've created an infographic to explain what this actually looks like. It's just the first one to go viral. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that again, added another layer, 
you know, I went to Columbia Journalism School and I did a data concentration. I was very strategic in going to this specific program. It was the only one that I, I, I applied to. Um, part of it was definitely for clout because the name Columbia carries weight, especially within media where majority of folks did go to the J school. Um, yeah. Secondarily, they were the only ones that had a 10 month master's program with the data concentration. And I was like, look, I, I love being a journalist. I love being a storyteller, but I don't want to spend six figures on just getting a degree to learn how to write. I know how to write. Yeah. Um, I want to go with this computational side because that's the space that I come from. You know, I, I had uh, helped to run marketing for Uber in, in Charlotte. So it was like analytics was at the top of the chain of everything that we did. And so I was like, how do I create this hybrid opportunity? And then con honestly, like, it was like, if all those fails, I got a master's degree, you know, <laughs> at a, a 10 month program that I almost died, died to get, and I can go teach, you there know, you in some, some regards. So, so for me, that layer was, yes, well, now when I walk into the room, I have additional access to networks that can help to elevate my publication and at least make those different um, connection points for me. It's interesting you talked about uh, we don't call enough of us geniuses, right? And I had this mm -hmm. conversation with Alex Wolf um, in New York, and who I believe is a genius, like Alex. Um, and she and she had this philosophy that, in her mind, the women who were on the corners in New York selling fruit were more entrepreneurial than a lot of the mainstream CEOs and tech founders that we hail as entrepreneurial mavens, right? Essentially, because those women created real value and it wasn't just about likes and swipes. Um, and I wonder your thoughts on how we as black creatives, technologists, innovators, and founders can better tap into our market opportunity and rethink our business models. I think it's so important that we read everything. You know, I think that like, there's so much great information out there. I think there's so many great things from business books to, um, to blogs, to obviously the podcasts, because it helps to enlarge our world and perspective beyond just what we can see. I'm concerned that we have likened entrepreneurship just to being cute online. Mm. And like I said before, I think it's a distraction away from some of the very real challenges we're up against as a community. And I think that even as we see kind of celeb and influencer culture start to battle it out right now amid this pandemic, there's such a great opportunity to be real problem solvers. And not everyone is deeply connected to the, what those problems look like. That's why I say like reading is gonna be so critical to like the ideation process of what is the value that the world is looking for? And now how do I get in it? I think of the Sayidi uh, uh, Favores, whose name I'm probably butchering, but over a, a Varuna Technologies, who's building water sensors for municipalities, like our infrastructure, our water infrastructure in the US is over half a century old. And so when we look at the flints of the world and what happened there, like he directly is like, I don't want another Flint to happen. So how do I create a tool that these water engineers can use to detect early potential contamination of water? Hmm. Wow. That's a billion dollar business yeah. right off right off the bat. Yes. And guess what? Like, I mean, he's raising money. He and his um his partner are raising money, but he's already got government contracts in play. Right. So the right, the money is for working capital, <laughs> but you've got you've got contracts with government that last eight years. So your money is good. Um, but you have to, like, really be in tune and diversify what you're reading and what you're watching so that you can start to get those ideas percolating around the problems that you can actually solve. Finding ideas and letting an idea mature is part of the game. You try certain things and if it works, it's great. If it doesn't, you've learned something and you find out, you do your postmortem and you realize like yeah. maybe okay, that didn't really work. Um, so anyway, I think, I think, um, I think in terms of adding value, you got to know what value looks like. You know, you got to know what the problems are and the pain points really are. And I, you know, I really behoove folks to just think about like, what are the deepest challenges based on the data that I'm reading based on the journals, Google scholar, like you can look up every, you know, everything. I think all the books that have come out from black and brown folks who have been writing about systemic racism or what have you, like that's great material to start with. 
you know, about what the actual value add could potentially be. But you have to kind of make sure your content stack is, is matching up to help you get those ideas flowing. Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech. It was produced by Morgan DeBond and me, Will Lucas. With additional production support by Love Beach, Stephanie Ogbogu, Raven Nirabor. Special thank you to Micah Davis, Sankara Zavanyan, you know, like the wine, and yes, that's his real name, and Dominique Wright. Learn more about Sherelle Dorsey and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. Go get your money. Peace and love. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. AT&T connects and old to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians. Or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now.